Well, good morning, and uh, welcome once again to Lone Oak First Baptist Church. Our kids' ministry is really, it's killing it right now. If, you're, if you have kids, they need to be involved in our children's ministry. All my kids love the children's ministry. They cannot wait to get here on Wednesday nights for Max, Sunday nights for Jam. Uh, this morning for Sunday school, I don't know if you've smelt it or not, but they're actually having pancakes and bacon over there. And, and best of all, <clears throat> uh, you guys might know Brian Arnett. He is dressed up like St. Peter's guard, Doug Edert. And if you don't know who that is, the stash is cash, okay? Uh, Brian's got about 60 pounds on him, but the resemblance is uncanny. You should go check out. I told Brian I would have him come up on stage, but I don't think I could recover enough to, uh, to preach this morning. But it's great. If your kids aren't involved, they need to be. Uh, it's going, kids, kids ministry here is, is rocking and rolling. And like Kenny said, uh, the future's bright, and these lights are very bright. If they, if they could maybe come down just a little, I am like blind right now. But uh, it, the, the, the kids' ministry, it's, it's rocking and rolling. So if you don't have, if your kids are here, make sure they're involved. Uh, but anyway, welcome once again. My name is Patrick. If you're a guest here, uh, I serve as Minister of Recreation and Young Adults. That means that I get the privilege of being over our Upward Sports Ministry. We just came off of the largest basketball league we've ever had, 467 kids. It was incredible. And we're just, yesterday, did our soccer evaluations for, I think, probably the largest soccer league we ever had. Uh, all of this foundation of Upward was built on from Brother Bob. Brother Bob's here this morning. Uh, let's give it up for Brother Bob. He's had, uh, he's had some health issues, and we're so thankful to see you here this morning. I, Bob, as I know you are, glad to be here. Uh, but I get the opportunity to preach this morning. Uh, Brother Dan has been said he is uh, preaching a revival in Somerset. So if you are a guest, I want to invite you back next week to hear our real preacher. Uh, he's kind of the varsity starter. I'm more JV. He's like the NCAA. I'm like the NIT, okay? Uh, I would say he's Kentucky and I'm St. Pete, but that doesn't work right now, right? I mean, that's Dustin, too soon? It's too soon? No? Okay, sorry. Uh, but anyway, this morning we're going to be in the book of Genesis. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the book of Genesis. We're going to be in chapter 6, 7, 8, and 9. I, I was tempted just to roll out the entire Hebrew scroll here. But we'll have uh, the words on the screen for you so you can follow along. I'm going to be bouncing all over the place. But if you have your Bibles, go ahead and make your way to Genesis chapter 6. We're going to be in likely one of the most famous passages found in Genesis. If you've never read the Bible before, never been to church, you've probably heard this story. If you had to list three Bible stories that everyone in America probably knows, this would always make that list, and that's the story of Noah and the ark. Now, Noah's ark brings up a lot of questions for Christians and non-Christians alike, one of which would be, how could a good God do this, right? And that's a legitimate question, one we'll talk a little bit more about later. Or when the Bible says the whole world was flooded, is that the entire world, a global, literal flood, or just the known world? Or how could you fit all of those animals into a boat? And I can actually answer that one for you real quick. Scholars tell us, based on the dimensions of the boat that we hear from Scripture, 35 to 40,000 animals could actually have fit in the boat, which to me brings up an even more important question, like, if 35,000 animals eat, you know what I mean? Like, what's the plumbing situation there, you know? And if you've never wondered that, you're a good person. And your mind doesn't work like mine does. But that's immediately where it went. 
Uh, or how did they get all the animals there to begin with? Did Noah establish a zoo or did they all just show up? And why didn't he stop the two mosquitoes from getting on the boat? I'm sure we've all asked ourselves that before. But none of that is the focus of Noah's story and, and thus not the focus of this sermon either. The point is not that it's a cute story about Noah and the animals. It's that God is building a highway called history. He's building something. He's telling this massive story in scripture and he wants to take the story of Noah and reveal something to us about his character. Specifically, he wants to show us that he is a God that judges sin. He is a good and just judge who justly pours out his wrath on sin. But he is also a loving and gracious father. He judges sin, but he loves the sinner and has a plan for our salvation. And if you pay attention, if you look closely in the story of Noah, you will see a picture of the gospel. But there's no way around it. This is certainly a story of judgment and wrath. So let's pick up in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. Genesis 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every intention of, his, of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. You hear that? The wickedness of man was great. Every intention, only evil continually. Some translations say always. Verse 6, And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animal, creeping things and birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. Now, whatever you want to say about this story, whatever sermon is preached on this passage or Sunday school lesson that you might teach to, uh, of this story, whatever you want to say about Noah's in the ark, you have to agree with me that this is not a kid's story, right? Like, this is no way a kid's story. I have no idea when we voted in the early church that we would paint children's nurseries in the theme of Noah's Ark. And I don't mean to offend you. If you're a parent and you have painted your nursery in the theme of Noah's Ark, you have made a big mistake, okay? Uh, th this, is, this is a day of wrath as torrential floods rise up from the death, uh, depths and rain pours down from the heavens. God is blotting out every man, woman, boy, and girl that is not on the ark. Gustave Dove, a French artist, has a painting from the 1800s of this scene, and it's horrifying. I would show you, but there's pictures of naked people on it, so I had to leave that part out. But it's this horrifying picture of vultures circling overhead, waves crashing down. There's three small children perched on a rock, presumably the last dry ground on earth, and their parents are in the water who can't bear to see their children die, and the father with his last breath is pushing his fourth and smallest child up onto the rock where the only other waiting creature is a tiger. Death is knocking at every door. The earth is literally being torn apart. Sweet dreams, baby Jack, right? No, don't do it. You might as well hang the four horsemen of the apocalypse as they're mobile. <laughs> Mommy, is that a birdie? No, that's locust that God sent to destroy the earth. How did this become a children's story? It is a story of wrath, of judgment. If you're a guest with us here this morning, we're glad you came, but you came on Wrath Sunday, okay? <laughs> Come back next week, I, I promise, it'll be better. Uh, 
But there, there, you know, and there's probably people here watching, uh, maybe online or in this room even, that are skeptical of this story, maybe even skeptical of God. Maybe they didn't grow up going to church. Maybe they did. Maybe they don't even know where they stand in their relationship with God, but they're skeptical of God. And specifically, they're skeptical of God, of Noah, and the ark. There's also probably people out there who did grow up going to church. They're even Christians, and they probably share some of the same skepticism. They might not say it out loud, but they might be thinking, a God who is willing to wipe out creation. I don't get that. Uh, they, might not be, well, they might not be willing to say it out loud, but they might be thinking, I don't understand how a loving God could kill everyone and everything on planet earth except for Noah and his family. That makes no sense to me. A God who would blot out his creation. Maybe you've just wondered that. Maybe you've actually said that. So let me just address that real quickly off the top. This is a story of divine judgment. And if you struggle with the concept of divine judgment, I get it. But if you remove divine judgment, or more importantly, the divine judge, then you actually create a bigger problem. See, if there is no God, no divine judge of right and wrong, just nature, and it's simply survival of the fittest, the strong devour the weak, that is the, that is the heart of the evolution of a species. Big fish, fish eat little fish all the time, and no one's protesting that, right? On the plains of Africa, the lion kills and eats whatever it wants, and, and no one cares. But when a strong human being or culture wipes out small, weak, oppressed humans or cultures, there is outrage, and rightfully so. Or when a strong, bigger country invades a small, weaker country to simply expand their territory and power and steal their natural resources, our hearts break as they should. Why? Because you know, I know, we all know in the heart of hearts, when something is wrong. We don't have to be told. We know whether, and whether secular culture wants to admit it or not, the only way we know that something is crooked is because right exists. The only way you know something is wrong is because right exists. You know when something is crooked because in your heart of hearts, you know there is a straight edge. You know in your heart that there is a right and a wrong, and we don't need anyone to tell us that. The fact that there is a right way, a straight edge, is the only way we can know that something is wrong or something is crooked. This is true because there is a God, a divine judge. And he wrote that law on every person's heart in creation. If without God, without, without a divine judge, there is no right, there is no wrong, it's only survival, it's survival of the fittest, and we have no right to speak out against the violence or the exploitation of the weak and oppressed, which for me creates a bigger problem than a divine judge. But it is also possible to agree with me that without a divine judge, you create a bigger problem, but you still don't feel any better. You grieve over the fact that the world was wiped out, or maybe you struggle with the reality of hell and judgment. You are grieved over the idea of evil and wickedness, and you are simultaneously grieved over the idea of judgment. You need to know that there is one who is more deeply grieved than you. Look back at verse 6 in the heart of God. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Another translation says, he was filled with grief. See, God loves you. 
And because of sin, we are separated from him. My sin, your sin, it grieves him to his heart. Judgment grieves him. God desires that none should perish, but God also gave man free will and therefore must allow for the consequences of our sin. And I don't have a lot of time to go deeply into this, but when preparing for this, I ran across a quote in reference to this passage from a famous philosopher. His name is Nicholas Walterstorff. He says, the tears of God are the meaning of history. The tears of God are the meaning of history. And I thought, man, that's awesome. So profound. I'm going to use that. But I have no idea what it means. <laughs> uh, now, here's what it means. It means God is a God of mercy and justice. God is not just a God of judgment. He is also a God of love and sacrifice. God knew in the garden when he created Adam and Eve, when they ate of that fruit, that it would cost him more than anyone else, and yet he still allowed it. He is the God of wrath, the divine judge, and the God of grace and compassion. The tears of God are the meaning of history. The reason we have a history is because God himself has suffered most of all because of the sins of humanity. So if the concept of divine wrath hurts your heart, God's heart was filled with grief. You have a loving, divine judge who at his deepest core longs for your salvation. So on one hand, he's got judgment. And on the other hand, he has salvation. And salvation doesn't come in spite of judgment or salvation doesn't come without judgment. Salvation comes through judgment. And we see this here in verse 8. Look with me. Verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So what was so special about Noah that he found favor? Nothing, actually. Verse 9, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. So what does this mean? Noah's righteous. He's blameless in his generation. Was Noah perfect? No. Was there sin in his heart? Plenty. Uh, we'll see that sin at the end of this story. There was plenty of evil. Noah was a part of the same evil human race that God wiped out. But in the book of Hebrews... God actually shines a little bit of light on this subject. Brother Dan read most of this actually last week during his devotional reading. But Hebrews 11 is called the Faith Hall of Fame. And in verse 7, it says, By faith, Noah, being warned of God concerning events yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By faith, Noah believed God. Noah responded to God's offer of salvation. In other words, he was righteous or rather credited righteous because he responded in faith. Noah's righteousness was the righteousness that comes by faith. It was what the Bible calls imputed righteousness, gift righteousness, given righteousness, not the righteousness that comes from being perfect. That would be nobody or Jesus, but the righteousness that is given by God, credited to him by God when he responded with faith and total surrender and a life of obedience that was demonstrated by his faith. In other words, God didn't save Noah because he was righteous. God granted Noah righteousness because he received God's offer of salvation through faith. Noah received righteousness by grace through faith. It's never earned. That's always the way we receive righteousness. It is always gifted to all who believe and respond in faith. This is foundational to our faith. 
Your righteousness, my righteousness, is a gift that we were given by God, that we did nothing to earn. Similarly, there is nothing that we can do to lose it, that we can't do anything to add to it, we can't do anything to take away from it. Noah wasn't chosen by God because of his good works, and neither are you. Noah wasn't outside of God's grace because of his sin, and neither are you. Noah was credited righteous when he responded with faith and total surrender by, with saving faith, real faith, not superficial faith. See, it's not like Noah just walked forward at vacation scroll school, school when he was a kid, right? He didn't recite a prayer and then like never consider his faith again, live however he wanted. He has his ticket to heaven. He's good to go. No. See, God is not in heaven with a pen and pad checking off our good works. Recited a prayer, uh, goes to church, uh, was baptized. And see, here's the scary part about all of those works that I just listed. All of them can be accomplished without the element of saving faith. Noah didn't have superficial faith. He had saving faith. Faith that led him to build a 500-foot boat on dry land in the desert over the course of roughly 100 years. God announces his judgment upon humanity, and Noah responds in faithful obedience. Everyone else is going, you know, I don't, I don't think it's going to rain. I don't think it's going to happen. And what are you going to do with a 500-foot boat on dry land anyway? I mean, an F-350 is not even going to be invented for another two millennia. How are you going to haul that thing to the beach, right? And if you're sitting there thinking, I wish you would have said Chevy, you've missed the point, okay? The point is Noah had saving faith, not superficial faith, not one time at VBS and that's it, or one time when I was a kid, I think I made a decision in the past. That's not saving faith. Saving faith is demonstrated by its works. We are not saved by works. We're not justified by our works, but our works are a demonstration of our faith. Just like James said, faith without works is dead. So why is this important? Why am I making a big deal about this? Because churches across the United States, and I dare say even right here in Paducah, in the Bible Belt, probably specifically in the Bible Belt, churches are filled with people who, when they were young, came down front. Maybe they checked a box. Maybe they raised their hand. Maybe they recited a prayer. Maybe they even stood in a baptistry and got wet. And now their life bears no real fruit. There's no conviction of sin. And there's no real affection for Christ. And they think that they're saved, but they're not. And that is a real concern for me and for all of our pastors. Noah's faith was demonstrated over a hundred years of obedience. Ask yourself, when's the last time my faith caused me to do something that was purely a demonstration of my faith and obedience? So finally the day came. After all those years, the rain began to fall and all those animals get in the ark. Genesis chapter 7, verse 15. In 16, when they went, they went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was breath of life. And all those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him. And the Lord shut him in. See, this to me this is such an important moment in this story. Because just like there are those in churches across America, in Paducah, maybe uh, even listening online or in this room right now, who uh, think they're saved but they're not, there are just as many, if not more, 
who are saved but struggle with doubt and the fear of losing their salvation. In this verse, we see a picture of our salvation. Noah responded in faith. He built a a giant boat on dry land in the desert to very specific specifications given by God. Most importantly of all, it had to be waterproof, right? Uh, So you go in the boat, how do you shut the door and waterproof it from the inside? Well, you can't. The Lord has to do that. And that's what we see. The Lord sealed Noah in. In the same way, there is nothing that you can do in your own efforts to keep your salvation. You have to realize you did nothing to earn your salvation, and therefore you can't do anything to lose your salvation. So when you're struggling with doubt or fear of losing your salvation, remember Noah and Genesis chapter 7, verse 16. Only the Lord can shut you in. There is eternal security that we have as Christians that is not held on by our ability to cling to God, but rather it's held on by God's ability to shut us in. So Noah is safely inside. And Genesis tells us that the fountains of the deep burst forth and the heavens open up, water from above in the form of rain and water from beneath in the form of springs or continental shift or I don't really know. But when it's all over, the highest known mountain at the time was underwater by more than 45 feet and water remained on the earth for another five months. And every living creature, man, woman, and child that was not in the ark drowned. Judgment was complete. And if this bothers you, if this grieves your heart, it grieves God's heart more. But he is a just judge who judges sin and also a loving father who wants salvation for all. Both are true. And the wickedness of man grieves his heart. But finally, the waters recede and they get to come out of the ark. In fact, it's kind of random. We actually know the exact date from Genesis chapter 8, verse 4. It tells us that in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. In the Hebrew calendar, uh, this is considered Nisan 17. Uh, some think some think of this as modern-day Turkey. If you ever watch National Geographic, every few years, somebody finds Noah's Ark in Turkey. And, and you know, I don't know if it's true or what, but that's what they say. Uh, but I want you to notice one of the very first things that happened uh, in Genesis chapter 8, verse 20. Then the, they've landed safely in Nisan 17. They're there on the mountains of Ararat. Genesis chapter 8, verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. I mean, can you imagine being that bird? We survived the flood, right? Sorry, I couldn't resist. That's where my mind goes. I'm sorry. If your mind is not like mine, that's good. But, but notice the first thing that Noah did. They've been on a boat for five months, 40 days, 40 nights, 150 days for the water to recede. The first thing Noah does when he gets off the boat is he worships. He's, he's grateful, gratitude. I don't know about you, but I would likely want to run and jump and kiss the dry ground, get away from the smell, right? But Noah worshiped. Verse 21. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. All right, chapter 9, let's move forward. And then God blessed Noah 
and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, where have we heard this before? This takes us back to Adam and Eve in the beginning. The creation that Adam and Eve tainted with sin. And then Cain and Abel. And then this downward spiral of sin, right? Which, by the way, that's the way sin works. Whatever that little sin is right now that you're okay with, that you're kind of flirting with, that little sin that you're okay with is going to spiral downward into deeper and more destructive sins. Downward and downward towards total death and devastation for you and your family. That's how sin works, and that's what happened here. God creates man, man falls. Six chapters later, the wickedness of man was great. Every intention was only evil continually. And now we are here in chapter 9. God has judged sin, and he has wiped the slate clean, right? So did it work? Did, it, did this experiment that God performs, did it work? He wiped it clean. Did Noah and his family live happily ever after after this? There's a pastor that I listen to often who calls the story of Noah and the ark failed reboot, a failed reboot. It's kind of like when you have an electronic device like your phone or your iPad, computer, whatever, and it's not working, so you reboot it. Some of you guys probably already know this, uh, but if you don't, if your electronic device isn't working, one of the first things that tech support's going to tell you to do is to shut it down, turn it off, unplug it, you know, count to 10. I think the 10 is just for you to, you know, quit being so angry at your device, but you count to 10 and then you plug it all back up. You power it all back up. Some of you already know about this and and be honest when you do it and it works, you're kind of like, I'm a technical genius, right? You know, just one step below a Russian hacker or whatever, right? Uh, But you don't have no idea what you did and neither do I, but it works, right? So what happens when you reboot your device and the problem is still there and then you reboot it again and it's still there. And you realize, what you realize is you've got a bigger problem, right? You've probably got a virus. Something has poisoned your device. Something is seriously wrong. And that's the thing about Noah's, Noah and the ark. The reboot that God performed did not work. God hit the reboot button. He shut it down. He unplugged it, counted the 10, and then plugged it all back up, and it didn't work. How do we know that? Because if you look on into chapter 9, you'll see that Noah gets drunk and shames himself naked. And that's not in your precious moments Bible, now is it? Who's this crunk guy, mommy? It's not a kid's story, okay? Uh, I'll repeat. So why didn't the reboot work? Because we have a virus, and that virus is sin. Noah got into that boat. All the animals got into that boat, and that sin virus also got into the boat. And when Noah got off the boat and all those animals got off the boat, so did that sin virus. That same sin virus that has been poisoning humanity since the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, that same sin virus that cuts humanity off from a loving God and makes us enemies of God, that same sin virus that we have no hope of overcoming on our own. So then why did God do it? Why do it? Why did God wipe the slate clean if it was only going to have the same results? Because like I said in the beginning, God was doing something bigger. He was pointing to something bigger. Remember, God is building this highway of history, and the flood wasn't just about God's judgment against sin, but it's pointing to something else, a completely new kind of salvation, a new 
covenant, if you will. Genesis chapter 9, verse 11. This is God. He says, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall flesh or shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is a sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. A covenant is simply a promise. Verse 13, I have set my bow in the clouds and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And when I bring clouds over the earth and my bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant, the everlasting promise between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is a sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So what salvation could there be that is grander on a grander scale than a massive flood? The clue is found in verse 13. I have set my bow in the clouds and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and earth. Now this point, it's not original to me. It was most famously pointed out by Charles Spurgeon. And pay attention because everything I have said so far is leading to this point. Uh, Spurgeon points out that the word bow that we, that we you know, see as a rainbow is not necessarily a rainbow. But the Hebrew word for the bow is the word kesheth, uh, which means a war bow, uh, a warrior's bow, a battle bow. Something that a warrior might carry into battle as he goes, right, to, to use, to fight. And if you've noticed, if you think about it, a rainbow is shaped just like a bow, right? So what God is saying, and that Spurgeon points out, is that the rainbow shows us that God has laid his war bow in the heavens. In other words, God won't accomplish ultimate salvation by shooting his arrows of wrath down from heaven into man. In fact, if you look at the rainbow, the wrath won't be shot downward into man, but the salvation will be accomplished by the arrows of judgment being piercing the very heart of the only begotten Son of God, Jesus Christ. The bow points to God. Ultimate salvation would not come from pouring out wrath on man, but by rather pouring it out on his only Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the better Noah. The story of Noah is pointing us all the way to the cross, to Jesus. The ark saved Noah from the wrath of God's judgment. Like Noah, Jesus saves us from God's wrath by taking the full penalty of our sins upon himself on the cross. Noah walked out of the ark still under the influence and the curse of sin, but unlike Noah, there was no sin in Jesus. Therefore, the salvation that Jesus offers isn't from rising floodwaters, but from the curse of sin and death itself. And not for nothing, remember I told you that the ark came to rest on the 17th day of the 7th month, uh, which in the Hebrew calendar is Nisan 17th. It seems kind of random that they would, they would kind of slide that fact in there. Well, it's not random. Uh, the day that the ark landed, judgment complete, that date pops up a couple more times in Scripture. If you fast forward roughly 900 years, the Israelites have just escaped from Egypt and it's a few days past when the angel of death has passed over the households, and they have now crossed the Red Sea. They get to the other side of the waters of judgment. Pharaoh's army is annihilated, and it gives us the very date 
17th day of the seventh month, Nisan 17. Jump forward another 1,500 years, and you're at the Feast of the First Fruits, which is a ceremony that takes place right after Passover. And wouldn't you know it, Jesus is crucified on that Friday, that Good Friday. Saturday goes by, and early Sunday morning, what we call Easter, a Hebrew calendar, would call Nisan 17. 17th day of the seventh month, Jesus has risen on Easter Sunday. The Ark of Judgment and the Instrument of Salvation has landed safely on Mount Ararat. And all who call upon the name of the Lord were saved. 2,400 years later, divine judgment was once again passed. And this time, the instrument of salvation wasn't an ark, but it was a cross. And God's wrath wasn't poured out on humanity. It was poured out on his son, Jesus. Noah and the ark is a picture of God's just judgment of sin. But more than that, it points to a new covenant, a new way, a greater salvation that can only be found in Jesus. The ark only had one door, and Jesus is the only way to God. John 14, 6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And right now, that door is open. One day, it will close. Do you really think it took Noah a hundred years to build a boat? Or do you think it's possible that God was giving humanity every opportunity to join him inside? Peter actually alludes to this in his letter. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, Peter actually talks a lot about Noah. And he says this, he said, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some would count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Don't think that what God intends as space to repent is just God being absent or not caring. More clearly, don't confuse God's patience with his absence. He patiently waits, not wishing that you should perish. This morning, if you're not a believer, join us on the ark of Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins. Put your saving faith and his finished work. God loves you and is patiently waiting. When we begin to sing here in just a moment, come down front, myself or one of the other ministers will be here. We would love to share with you the good news of the gospel, how you can become a Christian, how you can know freedom from the curse of sin and death itself. If you're watching online, or maybe you don't feel comfortable coming forward, simply text the word today to 270-398-5005, and one of us ministers will give you a call. Or better yet, if you don't want to do any of that, come meet us out of the Connection Center. One of our ministers will be standing right out there. We would love to tell you about Jesus. Don't wait any longer. Put your faith in Christ. One day, that door will close. Don't be left standing outside. If you are a believer, the good news of the gospel is that God fired his arrows of wrath into his one and only son, Jesus Christ, instead of you. And just like Noah, our response should be to fall down in worship and gratitude. Does your worship reflect this good news this morning? If not, be reminded and consider the good news of the gospel today. However you feel led to respond, do so as we worship together. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for today. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for the story of Noah we thank you for this picture that you give us of the gospel through his story.
that God, wrath must be complete. Judgment must happen, God. But you made a way for us to have salvation by not pouring out your wrath on us, but Lord, pouring out your wrath on your one and only son. That Jesus took our place on the cross. He took the penalty that we deserved for our sins. God, if there's anyone here who doesn't know that personally, God, I pray today would be the day that you break them, that you point that out to them, and you would lead them to repentance of their sins and salvation through your son. But God, for those of us who do know that truth, that fact that salvation is from Christ and Christ alone, God, I pray that our worship, our lives, our gratitude would be an ever-flowing fountain of, of thankfulness, God, for what you did. And that everything we do and exist would be to proclaim that good work and to live for you. God, this message is for all of us. For the believer and the non-believer alike. God, we pray, Lord, that you would do a work in our hearts this morning. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.